0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from
1: the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you'll need to know... Tentencies, the U.S. and Iran backing away from further conflict. Markets, meanwhile, rise. Cyber attack spike. Iranian hacking attempts soar since the death of General Soleimani. And forget Brexit, it's all about Megxit. The Sussexes announcing a split of sorts from the royal family. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to the show. Great to have you with us this morning. Karma heads in both Washington and Tehran, seemingly leading to karma markets all across the globe here. And what was perhaps another test of the long-run bull market here for stocks? Take a look at what we're seeing on Wall Street. We're back to pre-crisis levels with stocks set to hit record highs at open. The Nasdaq, in fact, closing at records yesterday in what felt like a classic relief rally. Now, admittedly, sentiment won't have been hurt by some good U.S. jobs numbers, too. Private sector jobs growth coming in at 200,000 numbers last month. That head of uh, payrolls, of course, the payroll data in the United States tomorrow. But the relief I'm talking about was a global and a cross-asset story. Take a look at what we saw in Asia as well. The Nikkei rising over 2%. Over in Europe as well, for comparison and the DAX up over 1.2%. What about for the oil markets as well? They continue to retrace some of the recent gains we saw, taking out that fear premium that was added as a result of the uh, recent ratcheting up of tensions between the United States and Iran. It's now nearing last week's pre-crisis levels too. Gold also down for just the second time since December 27th. So a bit of a relief here, as you can see all around. The question is, is it justified? Let's get to the drivers. The United States Congress voting today on limiting President Trump's military might just as the US pulls back from the brink with Iran. If passed, the War Powers resolution would give Congress a greater say about future military action. Nick Peyton walsh joins me now. Nick, great to have you with us. We can talk about whether or not that's got any chance of passing But first, I want to ask, are we clearer on what the U.S. strategy is with regards to Iran now? The president said yesterday he's ready to embrace peace, but at the same time he did ratchet up the economic sanctions on Iran too. So so what are we thinking here?
2: I mean essentially we're right back to where we started with the added fact that we now know that the Iranian and US military are able and capable of getting into direct military-military confrontations here. So don't underestimate the impact the last week has had. What is the Trump strategy? Long term, he seems to hope possibly there could be some internal upheaval in Iran that may unseat the government there. That he possibly hopes to strike a deal with Iran like he's always said he wanted, which would include their nuclear project, but also ballistic missile programs as well and yet again more sanctions we don't know the detail of what he announced yesterday he simply didn't say it but we do know that frankly when they tried that last time after the saudi oil field attacks many analysts said there wasn't much left to sanctions so we're essentially back where we started but do not feel a sense of relief here this is not a good thing that has occurred over the past week in terms of regional stability iran hasn't really exacted the blood vengeance i think many in its command want from the loss of their top military commander we may see moves to try and attain that in the weeks and months ahead. They have many asymmetrical ways of attacking the US military presence in the region using proxies. Uh, they have a much more patient timescale when it comes to pursuing things different to Donald Trump's kind of cable news diet, if it were. So the big takeaway, I think, here is that while you might make a case to suggest that what President Trump did by taking out the preeminent military planet organizing attacks previously and accused of organizing imminent ones and um, of iran that was not an irrational move uh, to some degree the messaging around it was chaotic and caused many i think to be terrified as to what may happen next we are of course now dealing with an Iran that is quite capable, it seems, of launching attacks against US military targets. The direct military-to-military confrontation turned out, weirdly, to be an off-ramp because nobody was hurt. And so much warning, it seems, to be given, the choice of ballistic missile that has a few minutes early warning uh, on radar systems, and also, it seems, to tip off via Iraq given to the Americans. Uh, we are in still to very uncharted waters ahead. Julia?
1: Yeah, and there are those at this moment that say, actually, this was a warning shot for Iran to say that, actually, this administration and this president were stand by without taking action but there are members of Congress and I'm talking about senators on both sides of the aisle here that are saying we simply don't want to see this again we want to limit the president's powers what chance if any does this resolution have of, of passing today even if the House votes on it today
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot more, frankly, that it has to go through uh, legislatively. And we've seen in the past, too, where Congress has tried uh, to prevent uh, military action or impede it, at least. Even if it's got through, it would essentially give, I think, uh, the presidency about 30 days uh, before it had to actually have a congressional vote to authorise military action. And bear in mind, as well, the prospect, frankly, no matter how poorly managed everyone uh, handles this crisis in the region of a long-term military conflict between the United States, States and Iran is exceptionally small. Uh, We're more likely, if this inflames, to see airstrikes over a number of days. We're more likely to see um, uh, Iran's proxies take it out on US allies there. That could do. But just as a broader caveat, you don't normally tend to see conflicts between countries, particularly simmering a length like this, unless both sides think there's a possibility they might get something out of it. Donald Trump does not need another war in the Middle East, particularly with the, frankly, far-fetched idea of some kind of U.S. ground involvement against Iran. He does not need that in the months ahead when he's trying to get re-elected. It's the opposite of what he promised the American people. And no matter what bluster you hear from uh, Iran, they simply have too much internal issues, too much internal unrest, too many economic problems, are too crippled by sanctions, and frankly, haven't got a strong enough military at this stage to countenance a lengthy uh, war against the United States or its allies in the region. So, you know, yes, Congress, I think, wants to have its voice felt here. Certainly, they seem to be extremely disappointed pointed in the level of intelligence given to them yesterday to justify these attacks about what how imminent the threat was. That will be key, but it appears to have gone off the radar now. Frankly, this crisis has been resolved. But the abiding feeling, I think, here is that Trump is often so ramshackle in his messaging that something rational, like taking out Qasem Soleimani, potentially, you know, a key threat towards the United States' interests in the region, gets lost in all of that. And frankly, it's been a week where a simple mm. administration strategy that was calm clearly message proceeded with diplomacy and, and trying to get everyone together understanding where the u.s was going could have made this so much calmer than it was instead we had a lot frankly of panic Julia?
1: Nick Payton-Walsh, International Security Editor, thank you so much for joining us on that. Now very much directly related to this, global hacking attempts emanating from Iran have almost tripled since the killing of the country's top military leader Qasim Soleimani. That, according to cybersecurity experts, Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, great to have you with us. Emphasis on attempts here. How successful have they been overall? And talk us through this pickup, the rise here that
3: we've seen. Yeah, Julia, we haven't yet seen any kind of big bang attack. We should be clear mm. on that. What, what researchers are observing is really uh, Iran-based or, or iran based, uh, hackers raising their heads uh, above the parapet. According to uh, research uh, firm Cloud, Cloudflare, they saw a 50% increase in the, in the wake of the killing of, of Qasem Soleimani, of, of Iran-based attacks on U.S. government websites. They also, in terms of global attacks, saw a significant uptick uh, in attempts to hack targets around the world, traced back to IP addresses in Iran in the wake. Uh, of that attack. So that is significant, according to researchers. In terms of the types of attacks, this is so far on a fairly small scale. We're seeing website defacements. We saw uh, a picture of of, uh, President Trump's bloodied face uh, on the website, on a website belonging to the government publishing office over the weekend. Similar treatment uh, for the Texas Department of Agriculture and Alabama-based veterans group. There's also been, according to researchers, some denial-of-service attacks. We've seen Iran deploy those in the past, uh, several years ago, against U.S. banks and and particularly significant, what we call probes. Uh, this is where uh, Iran can sort of uh, infiltrate networks and just sit there uh, and watch. That is significant because, uh, you know, some, one concern for researchers and frankly for U.S. government officials is that Iran could use its cyber capabilities uh, to, to sort of inform physical attacks, to, to set up camp and to watch targets and to use that to play into uh, any more potential retaliation in the physical space. So that is a key component and U.S. officials watching this very closely. Thank you. Fantastic to have you with us, Claire Sebastian. Later in the show, we're going to be talking
1: to the director of cybersecurity company FireEye about the nature of this threat, what they're seeing and what they're looking for. For now, let's move on. Uh, Ukrainian authorities are in Tehran investigating multiple possible causes for Wednesday's deadly plane crash of Ukrainian Flight 752. Those causes include a possible anti aircraft missile attack. Iran says the Boeing plane was on fire before it hit the ground, killing all. All 176 people on board. Scott McLean is in Kiev for us now. Scott, of course, that's just one possible cause and we don't want to speculate at this stage, but what more do we know?
4: Hey, Julia. So this is coming from the head of, the, of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, who is saying that they're investigating a range of possible uh, possible um, reasons why this plane went down. One of them is that the plane may have hit a drone or another aircraft. One of them is uh, potentially an engine explosion or some sort of catastrophic engine failure, uh, potentially a terror attack inside the plane, or that the plane was hit by an anti-aircraft missile, which would have been fired from the ground. Now, it's important to point out, now these are all just possibilities one is not necessarily more likely than another one what we do know at this point is that according to the initial Iranian investigation the plane tried to turn back to the airport presumably after it was lost from radar in order to find a landing spot after um, this potential problem or this problem that we don't know what it is yet uh, cropped up we also know from that that the plane was on fire before it actually hit the ground ukraine has sent it- team of about 45 experts investigators to go there to try to get some answers it is likely that the Canadians and the Swedes will also be involved with this uh, investigation but uh, one thing is clear Julia and that's that the Iranians say that they will not send those two black boxes back to the US manufacturer of this Boeing 737 um, under any circumstances at least that's what they're saying at this stage.
1: Yeah, and that's not against protocol, we have to point that out at this stage too, but there is a broader worry here if we don't see any form of US participation here, no participation even at this stage from Boeing. Um, Are we going to have confidence in the report that we ultimately get here about exactly what happened? It's a question here.
4: Yeah, and I think that it's a fair one. The authorities in Iran working with the Ukrainians, the Canadians, and the Swedes, they should be able to decode the... Uh, the black boxes but there's a lot of information on there and if they run into any potential issues what often happens in these cases that they would usually send them back to the manufacturer to have them try to look at it and try to get that information off of them Um, they're saying iran is saying that that won't happen but obviously they could potentially change their mind down the road but it does call into question the potential integrity of this investigation and there are 176 families who are really craving answers here 11 of the victims are Ukrainian. You can see this memorial for nine of them behind me. These are the nine members of the flight crew. And there was a really powerful scene uh, about an hour ago or so. Uh, The mother of one of the pilots, Captain Vladimir Gaponenko, was here sobbing uncontrollably i i've rarely seen grief like i saw from this mother she was saying over and over in ukrainian why have you left me who will visit me really pleading for any of her son's remains to come back to her as is the tradition here in ukraine julia
1: yeah whatever the cause here devastating for anyone involved And our our hearts go out to uh, to those people scott mccain great to have you with us reporting from kiev there in ukraine Right. let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that making headlines around the world. Prince Harry and Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, say they intend to step back from their roles as senior members of the royal family. The couples say they want, quote, financial independence, meaning they no longer wish to accept public money. They did not consult other members of the royal family about their decision. And Max Foxer is in London for us on this story. Max. A shock, perhaps, in terms of the timing, but I think anyone who's watched that the tensions within the royal family in this couple would perhaps not be surprised by the decision. But I can't help feel like they're cherry picking a little bit, not doing the the tough jobs here of the royals, but for keeping a lot of the good things like the the branding that will help them on their way.
5: Well. If we look at this as a business story, this is a firm, it's an organisation, it's also a family and they need to find a way to work together and their fundamental, they have a profit motive of course but their fundamental reason for being is to support the Queen as head of state and head, as a head of the family. So all the other royals are there and they carry out engagements on her behalf, all there working towards the Queen. So that's how the roles emerge, they emerge in the shadows of the Queen. What you can't do, or no one's achieved in the past, is to find a new role where you can do a bit of that and also have your own private sector career but that's effectively what this couple are proposing and they did so in a very intricate website that they published last night on the face of it not too bad an idea perhaps they're trying to get the make the best of a situation where they're never going to be king and queen but they want to support um, the queen as she sits on the throne right now but It was the way they handled it. It was the fact that they just published this website saying this is our new role, without discussing that with the Queen, with Prince Charles, or with Prince William. So the rest of the firm were completely in the dark about this, and it can't happen without their support. You can't do it without collaborating with the other members of the family. So that's why you're hearing words like hurt and deep disappointment, and this is a complex matter coming out from the palace today, Julia.
1: Yeah, it's quite funny, Max. I mean, they they also push back against some of the coverage, and they've done this for for many months and, and weeks. The coverage that they get, they say at times, is very unfair, particularly by the, the British media here. And to your point, and I think you raise a great point here, they perhaps should be lauded for the fact that they want to provide a piece of modern monarchy here and be financially independent the best way they can. They've both got talents and skills that perhaps they could they could utilise in that vein. Is it simply the handling of this that has seen again um pretty fierce negative response here for the couple?
5: Uh, Yeah, there's a couple of things going on here. So there's this tension within the family, within the households which has been building. That's become unbearable. But then there's the other uh, wider concern, which is the media pressure and the fact that they feel they have a right to a private life and they're not getting it. So what uh, the counter-argument from the tabloids, for example, is always that um, you get public money, you're public figures, so you don't actually have a right to a private life or a minimal private life. And they fundamentally disagree with that. So what they're trying to do is say, okay, we'll give up the public. public money, the 5% of our income that comes from the sovereign grant, and that uh, strengthens our argument that we do have a right to a private life. I mean, journalists have this issue, don't they, when they have to consider, you know, what sort of relationships they have with brands, will it compromise their reporting? You have it from, uh, you know, chief executives as well. How much do you work with other brands in order not to compromise your primary role? They've created some murkiness there. It's going to be very difficult to see how they can define this role, which is part public and part private sector. Uh, But, you know, they are a very successful, very charismatic, very powerful couple. Uh, They've achieved a huge amount in their career so far. Maybe they can make it work. But at the moment, they've got this deadlock because the rest of the family are furious with what they've decided. and They're not going to collaborate. They're going to have to work through the issues together somehow. So we're going to have to find some compromise somewhere.
1: Yeah, just because you're royal doesn't mean you aren't human. And I think we're seeing that playing out. Max Foster, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. The UK House of Commons, meanwhile, will vote on the government's withdrawal agreement bill shortly. Given by Minister Boris Johnson's commanding majority, the Brexit bill is expected to pass. It will then head to the House of Lords. To France now, and mass demonstrations against President Macron's proposed pension reforms continues. Planned by unions, protests have been going on for over a month, causing power cuts, disrupting transport and forcing schools to shut down. They're the country's longest nationwide strikes in decades. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, all be damned. President Trump makes some pretty bold claims about America's energy dominance. We'll sort through the details and bone on the run, but how far can he go? There are new restrictions on the former boss turned fugitive. All the details, next. first move where U.S. stocks are set to hit fresh record highs at the open this morning. Basically what we're seeing here is an unwinding of some of the safe haven trades made earlier this week. Take a look at gold. We're pulling back from some seven-year highs. Brent crude is now down around $6 a barrel from recent highs. We've got dollar-yen higher as well and the 10-year yield also pulling up a little bit here too. Jeff Kleintop is Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab and joins us now. Jeff, great to have you with us. Is this complacency for For investors, do you think, or or justified given the ratcheting down of tensions, or at least verbally, it seems?
6: Well, maybe I categorize it as classic. This is a classic, almost textbook response to U.S. airstrikes. Unfortunately, we have 30 years of history to look at when we see what the market impacts of U.S. airstrikes are. And this is exactly what happens. You get this negative reaction on the first day or positive reaction in the case of safe havens, which then works its way back over the next five days. That's been the case for stocks, bonds, oil and gold this time. It really is a classic reaction. I think it makes sense in the context of a global economy, which is showing signs of stabilization. After slowing last year, global leading indicators have ticked up for the first time in two years. Even the manufacturing sector, where the world economy has been weakest, has shown some signs of stabilization. I think markets are more responding to that and downplaying those geopolitical flare-ups.
1: Yeah, we've done a three or four, five day round trip and we're back where we started here. But the big risk of 2019, and you've alluded to it here, was uh, the trade uncertainty that we saw. We got confirmation that the Chinese are coming to sign the phase one trade deal next week. Have we seen peak uncertainty for trade now as we move into 2020?
6: It seems convinced of that I'm not. I, I think we'll see further yeah. trade issues flare up over the course of the year, not just on the path to maybe some type of phase two deal with the with the, with China, which seems unlikely, but maybe it changes from broad tariffs <clears throat> to more focused trade issues on technology and technological leadership. We already know there's a struggle with 5G between the U.S. and Chinese leaders, but there's other areas in AI and robotics where companies could butt heads, and so, or, or the countries could butt heads over the company's developments. So So I can see this beginning to affect the tech sector, excuse me, which has been a leadership sector for the global stock market. That could begin to fade a little bit here this year, could cause troubles for that sector.
1: Yeah, I was just showing on the screen actually a tweet that you sent out earlier about what happens first in 2020 and uh, the majority of people who voted said the Mandalorian season two is going to come first rather than uh, Brexit stage two or US-China phase two, which actually amused me this morning. But to your point, what we saw in 2019 was real leadership coming from the technology sector. So if this sort of strategic conflict that we've seen between the United States then hones in on the, the tech sector, are you expecting a loss of leadership perhaps then for the technology sector? Or is that sort of too blunt a way to say it here?
6: Well, I think we could see a shift more towards value-oriented leadership, mm. um, industrials on, on maybe an emerging manufacturing rebound, financials which have actually performed pretty well over the last say five, four or five months, particularly in Europe and maybe energy as well. I know energy stocks have pulled back a little bit here, tied to the weakness in in oil prices, but maybe that firms up a little bit. Those value parts of the market really haven't been leaders in a while and could prov- could provide maybe a second wind for the overall stock market uh, with a tech sector that's maybe going to be a little bit tired after carrying the market for so long.
1: Yeah, we've been through a 15 month downturn in the the manufacturing sector, I think on a a global basis. We seem to see a bit of a pickup. Then the December numbers were a bit cautious. The U.S. numbers at the back end of last week, again in the manufacturing survey data, worrying. Where are we on manufacturing and how important is this if the consumer remains
6: strong? This is really important. I mean, this has been the crux of where the weakness is and could extend into job cuts if inventory levels remain this high. So we do need to see this uh, the end demand, particularly for autos, firm up. And that's really key. So we've come back to around the 50 level globally, which is the break even between growth and contraction in manufacturing. I-, I think the key thing is to watch products like autos. That's a huge part of the manufacturing supply chain. Demand has been soft. But if we look at auto registrations in Europe, for example. Um, Um, The trend there has really rebounded pretty well. So if we can see more consumer interest in some of these large manufactured big ticket items, we can see a turnaround in manufacturing. That's what I'm watching most closely.
1: Yeah, such a great point. Watch the auto sector. Jeff, fantastic to have you with us. Jeff Kleintop, your chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab there. All right, we're counting down to the market open this Thursday morning. We expect record highs. Fresh record highs for the U.S. stock market. Stay with us. The opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange is next. Welcome back to First Move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell. Here in New York this Thursday morning, as expected, a strong open for U.S. stocks this session. Stocks around the globe, in fact, in rally mode as the U.S. and Iran appear to pull back from a wider military conflict. We're higher right now, as you can see, by uh, four-tenths of one percent here across the board. We're pretty much back to where we started before the tensions flared last week. The Nasdaq moving further into record territory in early trading. Actually, the S&P 500, too, in record territory as well a global story, though, uh, but I have to say new challenges await, fresh challenges await investors beyond geopolitics. We've got the December jobs report out tomorrow here in the United States. We've got earnings season as well beginning next week. Major U.S. banks are reporting. And last but not least, China, of course, announcing, as we've mentioned already on the show, that Vice Premier Liu He will be in Washington next week to sign the first phase of the U.S.-China trade deal. All right, let me walk you through some of our global moves this morning to Apple stop hitting fresh record highs. The company has announced that the App Store customers spent almost $1.5 billion between Christmas and New Year. A 16% increase from the same time a year ago. Shares have now officially doubled over the past year. Take a look at Tesla, too. Higher by some 1.3%, moving closer to that $500 a share mark. That, despite some cautious new comments from two Wall Street analysts on valuation concerns, Tesla stock has doubled in just the past three months. Shares of tech giant, meanwhile, Hewlett-Packard are also trading higher by some two tenths of 1%. Reports say it's once again rejected a takeover bid from Xerox. So we'll just say, though, on uh, Tesla, the average share price estimate is just over $300, I think, from analysts on the street. So we are way ahead of that right now. Let's move on. Cybersecurity experts are reporting a spike in Iranian hacking attempts since the killing of General Soleimani of Iran. Denial of service attacks and network probes top the list. My next guest, though, says the most damaging threat, though, could be cyber espionage. Joining us now, John Holquist. He's director of intelligent analysis at FireEye. John, fantastic to have you with us. Let's just start by talking about what you've seen in terms of scale and numbers since the attack, obviously, on General What have you been seeing?
7: Well, we are still seeing the adversaries that we track, and they still appear to be mostly focused in the Middle East. That's where they've been traditionally, they're traditionally focused. We're expecting them to move a lot of their operations uh, towards targets in the United States, particularly as they try to understand the dynamic situation that's unfolding. Uh, They'll be carrying out cyber espionage against policymakers, diplomats, military, government, Um, We are also concerned, uh, because of some of the terrorism concerns, that they are also tracking people specifically through some of the intrusions they've carried out against places like telecommunications firms, hospitality, hotels, uh, travel, airlines. Uh, These intrusions could allow them to specifically uh, watch people as they move in and out of of countries and, and, and find them.
1: Yeah, it's effectively spying. How well protected, if we're talking about people like politicians, if we're talking about Congress specifically right now, and particularly in the United States, how well protected are individuals from this kind of intrusion, this kind of spying?
7: Well, U.S. government networks uh, tend to have very robust security. Uh, We see these adversaries. consistently target them. Uh, it, it, it is an uphill battle for them On, on when, when that happens. Um, they're often found and the, the incidents are sort of disrupted. Uh, but w- what we're talking about with some of the surveillance capability is their ability to go after the places that you you might use your regular cell phone at, the places you might uh, schedule a flight from, other places like that, where uh, these are third parties that we use that are not necessarily within our control.
1: Who are we talking about when we say they? You said they've been doing this and we've seen a step up. Are we talking about hackers that are state-sponsored, because if I look at some of the data that we've seen just in the last couple of days, we've seen an an increase on a global basis, and I just wonder whether this is more sophisticated hackers that are perhaps masking their whereabouts, or it's not just about risks emanating from Iran, but perhaps they're using others, whether they've come from the dark net or other proxies, for example.
7: Great question. So... Uh, the Iranian intelligence services who are tasked with a lot of this activity are using proxies to carry out a lot of their activity. In the wake of the Stuxnet incident where uh, the Iranian nuclear program was disrupted by a tool that was probably, probably came from the United States, uh, they developed a program on the backs of their local talent, which were, were essentially hacktivists or, or young criminals. Who were then sort of, uh, w- sort of went legit and held out, a, set out a shingle and, and set up a website a- and called themselves penetration testers with government sponsors. So they're using they're they're using this talent to carry out these incidents. But we've also seen there's a, a sort of nationalist undercurrent of civil society who is carrying out some of the less sophisticated actions so you know when these things light off that's usually who you first see and those are not necessarily people who are receiving their orders from the state
1: I just feel like we're a little dismissive perhaps of Iranian capabilities here particularly if we're comparing them to the likes of the Russians or the Chinese and to the point that you're making here if you can hire people and you can go on the dark net and find people um, it's dangerous, perhaps, to underestimate their capabilities. Is that a fair assessment, or am I being alarmist here?
7: Well, yeah. Uh, you know that if you're if you're getting your talent from from the marketplace, there's a lot of talented people out there that you can use to sort of improve your capability. One of the things the Iranians have used to improve their capability, they're actually using open source tools that penetration testers use to test the networks for test networks for security in places like the united states uh, some of these tools are very sophisticated very capable capable and they allow the iranians to make a step up in in sophistication uh when when targeting place people like us
1: how vulnerable Is U.S. infrastructure here because a lot of the reports that I've read suggest and we've seen it in the past with Iran uh, tackling or targeting a U.S. dam how vulnerable are things like power grids dams in the United States utility infrastructure so our
7: uh Infrastructure is is pretty resilient. We've got a lot of experience here, especially, for instance, with the grid, with weather incidents, and and we've been preparing for these sorts of things for a long time. I'm not so concerned that they're going to turn out the lights or bring our economy to its knees. we're more likely to see specific attacks against individual members of the economy, uh, specific companies. They're going to go after the private sector, uh, mm. and we know that those sorts of state attacks can have strong uh, repercussions for those specific individuals. So right now, an American company is in court claiming they took $1.3 billion in damages from a state-sponsored cyber attack um, against them in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, you raised such a great point that it's the corporate sector here that really has to tighten up security in particular. Just to to wrap it up here, though, we're talking more and more about the threat that Iranian hackers pose here. Is Russia, is China still a far greater and more sophisticated threat than Iran poses?
7: So uh, Russia, for instance, has developed some really... Uh, dangerous capability. We do know that they have the ability to manipulate systems. They have caused a blackout in the past. They have manipulated safety systems, which are really the last defense and, and industrial systems to protect lives and, and keep things from going into really dangerous places. Uh, Iranians haven't necessarily shown that capability, uh, but you know, often with a lack in technical capacity, they make up for with their brash nature and some really creative uh,
1: techniques. John, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise this morning. John Holtquist there, the director of cyber espionage analysis at FireEye. We're going to take a quick break here now on First Move, but up next, digging into President Trump's claims about shale oil and whether it's the saviour of U.S. energy policy. Stay with us. We'll be back for this. In first move, President Trump made a series of pretty bold claims about the state of the U.S. oil market during his comments on the Iranian crisis. Wednesday, the president said the shale revolution has completely transformed the energy picture for the United States. He suggested that supply shocks from the Middle East are a thing of the past.
0: Over the last
8: three years, under my leadership, our economy is stronger than ever before. And America has achieved energy independence. These historic accomplishments shades are strategic priorities. These are accomplishments that nobody thought were possible. We are now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. We are independent and we do not
0: need Middle East oil. Oh,
8: Trump's
1: claims aside, US crude prices are still tied to the global oil market as a whole. West Texas crude recently rose to its highest level since April as Iranian tensions flared this week. Never mind the 14% rally that we saw in September of last year, of course. John Defterius joins me from Abu Dhabi. Um, A bold call, John. Not entirely correct, though he did say the United States is now the largest oil producer in the world, which was correct. But, hey, it's far more complicated than that. Talk us through it. (laughs)
8: <laughs> he sounds like a bully on the block to me, intoxicated by the power of oil and gas, uh, Julie, I think. Uh, numero uno, indeed, the United States had 13 million barrels a day. Uh, that's just crude. If you add all the other products that America produces in the petroleum sector, it's 18 million barrels. So it is a major player. By the way, it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. This policy goes back uh, well over a decade to the Obama administration, which deregulated the market uh, to foster that investment. Uh, the U.S. produces 18 million overall, but there's a gap because the U.S also consumes 20 million, and yes, there's a role for the U.S. producers and also the Middle East exporters to the United States. Let's take a look at the graph. Uh, A decade ago, they were importing two and a half million barrels a day from the Middle East. That was as high as one and a half million uh, in 2018, and it's below a million now. So they're growing more independent, I would say, the United States. They're not there yet. Where they're a major player, and all of a sudden, as a matter of fact, Julia, is in the natural gas market. They're competing head-to-head with Qatar, Russia, Australia, especially in China, and also uh, within the European Union. Uh, Donald Trump is so aggressive these days, he's even putting sanctions on the companies in Europe that are building the pipeline from Russia to Germany. So I say, welcome to the great game of oil and gas, something Donald Trump yeah. seems to like.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I just have that memory of President Trump pleading with the Saudis back in 2018 to release more reserves after they increased the sanctions, of course, on Iran and the exit of the nuclear program. And they knew they needed the Saudis to to bring oil prices down. But, uh, hmm. Okay, if, if the president's saying, look, we don't need the Middle East and we don't need the Saudis, what does that mean for policing the choke point that we always come back to when we talk about Iran and the risks surrounding global oil supplies here, the uh, the Strait of Hormuz? Talk me through that and the implications of yes, that. Well. Uh,
8: yes, indeed. Uh, The fable straight-up Hormuz, it's only a four-hour drive from us here in Abu Dhabi, Julius. You've got to come and visit it the next time you're in town. (laughs) Uh, Incredible place, because at its narrowest point, uh, it's uh, 29 nautical miles, so it can get clogged up rather easily here. Uh, The president doesn't like to hear it. The world consumes 100 million barrels a day. Uh, More than a fifth of that comes from here in the Middle East, and it has to pass through the strait. The top producers, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, iraq that's not going to change and if the iran didn't have the sanctions on it it would be exporting uh, even more now the u.s has a big presence here has all the military bases the uk and japan are in the strait escorting tankers out but the president's now calling on nato to get more involved i don't think that's a, a bad call by the president but it boils down to will it diminish the influence of the united states in the region uh, listening to the tone of donald trump and the hard line he took against Iran, even though he didn't want to get it tit for tat with Tehran after the latest strike. Uh, it sounds like he still wants to have a major presence. Uh, and whether the Iraqis will still want the troops there is a big question mark at this juncture as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, everyone needs everyone else at this moment. And uh, being the largest output yes, producer of, of oil in the world, yes, means means very little in, in this regard. So someone has been inhaling uh, gas fumes on and it wasn't your eye. Thank you so much for that, naughty <laughs> John Deptarius from Dhabi. Don't care. say anything. All right. Thanks. After the break, fugitive Carlos Ghosn said freedom is sweet, but what kind of freedom is being locked inside Lebanon now? Richard Quest has done a great interview with him, and he's up next. Stay with us. move and a look at today's boardroom brief. Turmoil continues at Bed, Bath and Beyond. Home goods chain is abandoning its financial targets after it reported a quarterly loss of $29 million. Sales for the period slumped more than 8%. Its new CEO says a turnaround plan is in the works. The chief executive of British Airways parent company, IAG, will step down later this year. Willie Walsh helped create the airlines group back in 2011, overseeing the original merger between BA and Spain's Iberia. He will be replaced by Luis Galigo, who currently runs Iberia. More change at the top, this time at British retailer John Lewis, the managing director of its department stores, is to leave. The exit by Paula Nichols comes after John Lewis cut its profit forecast and warned it may be unable to pay staff bonuses for the first time in 67 years. Lebanon now, and the country has imposed a travel ban on the fugitive former auto boss, Carlos Ghosn. It follows a request from Interpol and, of course, yesterday's public appearance in Beirut fled Japan, where he was facing charges of financial misconduct, and was then smuggled into Beirut. And that is where we find Richard Quest. Richard, great to have you with us. This actually goes directly to the question that you asked him in that press conference, that sort of sense that he's effectively swapped one jail for, for another, unable to move even though that he has made it to Beirut here. What are your thoughts on this?
9: You know, today he was called to the state prosecutor's office and he was told that a travel ban had been imposed upon him from Lebanon and the reason for that was because of the red notice that Interpol has put out Uh, even though he can't be or is not customarily Lebanese, the Lebanon government doesn't extradite their citizens there is now this red notice by Interpol requiring national members to arrest and detain those people. And so they've put in place this red notice, and now the government here has said there is a travel ban. For Carlos Ghosn, of course, as he told me yesterday, this whole thing meant basically Lebanon is not a prison for him. It's somewhere he wants to be.
10: I didn't leave Japan to hide somewhere. I left Japan because I'm looking for justice and I want to clear my name. Which means i would be looking for a country where I could have this case tried, but with a trial respecting the rights of the defence.
9: One thing seems clear is that you are regarded as a fugitive by, uh, by others in, in the world. Um, and that's not going to change, is it?
10: You know, people don't like fugitive when the fugitive is escaping justice. Uh, it's a different opinion when a fugitive is escaping injustice. You know, I don't think that people look at people who run from North Korea or from Vietnam or from Russia under the communist regime uh, as people are running from justice. Well, frankly, I can tell you that I mean, in the system in which I've been through, I've been through uh, I consider that there was practically zero chance I would get a fair trial. With zero chance of getting a fair trial, I don't think this is justice. Uh, I was not running from justice. I was looking for justice.
9: You know, I know you're not gonna give me any details, but can you substan- Can you say if the rumors and suggestions are substantially true? The rumor and suggestion I'm talking about involves a train trip to Osaka, a hotel, a box, and a flight in a- two private jets via Turkey. Is that substantially
10: accurate? I will make no comment on this. I'm going to tell you why, uh, Richard, because obviously I was lucky to have people who supported me in this because, you know, when you are in a situation where you're in trouble with justice, you don't have too much candidate to help you. I was lucky and I need to, as much as possible, protect them.
9: Did you fear it was going to go wrong?
10: Uh, I was anxious, but I was not afraid for a very simple reason is, frankly, I had nothing to lose. That means the situation for me uh, in Japan was so bad, and my perspective was so dark, and the fact that I lost any face of having a fair trial, that uh, this encouraged me to decide to leave Japan.
9: I'm just going to go for this and hope that you'll give me an answer. What was it like in the packing (laughs) (laughs) case?
10: No comment. Look... Freedom, freedom, no matter the way it happens, is always sweet
9: be sweet, but his legal problems are far from over, Julia. Not only here in Lebanon is he now under a travel ban, but there are people making mischief by trying to get him prosecuted because when he was CEO of Renault Nissan, he visited Israel, which is something Lebanese citizens are not allowed to do. He says he did so on one of his other passports. He wasn't a Lebanese citizen as such as he when he did so, and he went as the CEO of Nissan. But he apologises for doing so his legal problems will be going on for years.
1: Absolutely, and now the battle begins to prove his innocence. Richard, I've got so many questions for you. We shall reconvene in a couple of hours' time on the Express. But thank you so much for that and great interview once again. All right, a quick look. If we've got time, no, we don't. I've got to wrap it up. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. And is right now at record highs. See you in a couple of hours.
0: When you work, you work next level.